the interactivity is kind of an app. And a show like me, you have to know what it's all about. The good, the bad, and the confusing. Well, you've come to the right place. I've brought together a status leading disability advocates to unpack the report for all of us. Check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hi, George. Hey, George. Hey, George. Hi, George. So awesome to have everyone together. I'm really looking forward to today. We're going to get right into the report and help people to understand what it means for all of us. But before we do that, how about we all introduce ourselves? And I'll start with Elle. Thanks, George. Um, yeah, I'm Elle. I'm the Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Disability Advocacy Network Australia, and I'm coming to you from Sovereign Wiradjuri Country, also known as Central West New South Wales. Welcome, Elle. Jared. Hi, George. Hi, everyone. Wonderful to be back on the pod. I am coming to you from Duggins and Circle Central Coast. Welcome, Jared. Nick. Thanks, George. I'm Nick Avery, and I'm the Deputy Chair of Every Australian Counts, and I'm coming to you from Wood Land in Western Australia. Welcome, Nick. And Sam. Hi, George. I'm Sam Payer. Uh, I run a coordination business, and I'm also a member of the Independent Advisory Council and um, on the Intellectual Disability Reference Group. Thank you. We're, gonna, we're not going to waste any time. We're going to get straight into the report. And we're going to go through all of the hot topics in the report. We're not going to talk about everything in the report, just the key things that people need to know. And we encourage you to read the report for yourself, make your own uh, conclusions about what's in there, and hopefully this, this podcast will help you to figure out What's important to do in the end of review? So, how about before we go any further, I'm going to ask Al to just tell us what the end of review report actually is. Just a few words, Al. <laughs> of course. So, the review report is the culmination of about a year's work by the review panel, but also by all of us. And disability representative organisations, disabled people, families, allies, providers, everybody has put an enormous amount of work into the review, talking about both what is not working, but really importantly, talking about what what they want to change and some ideas to how to make the NDIS and the broader system work better. Fantastic. How about we start with foundational supports? Because that's the one that's been on the news a lot. What what are foundational supports? Yeah, I think Bruce did a whole lot of foreshadowing around foundational supports, our brand new bit of jargon, uh, a couple of months ago. So this is kind of what we've also called Tier 2 in the past or information linkages and capacity building. It got a rebranding a couple of years ago to that. Uh, Neither of those have been particularly successful. And again, we're having the same conversation but now with a new name. And this is about all supports outside the NDIS. So these were things that existed before the NDIS, like home and community care, which is 
you know, little bits of cleaning and shopping support, enough to keep people living at home and being a bit independent, uh, but also the kind of specialist supports that people could access in some places. And it was really inconsistent. And then when the NDIS came along, a lot of that got folded into the scheme. And it's meant that for people with disability outside the NDIS individualised plans, there's literally nothing. And so that's what everyone's talked about with lifeboats and oasises and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, that's what they're talking about. Um, and research from Melbourne Uni has found that all of the, the kind of attempts to fix that through the information linkages and capacity building program have been pretty much a failure where they've done short-term projects that haven't been sustained and they haven't actually delivered the kind of you know, things that people actually need where they actually need them. So the report's calling for both targeted and generalised uh, foundational supports. So things that are targeted at specific needs and then the general ones that pretty much everyone will be able to need to access. So I think that, you know, and how we do that is going to be, for me, quite fascinating. We did quite a project around this for our part of the review uh, and worked with Associate Professor Sue Olney, who's like the expert on this stuff and did a lot of the research and you know, it's really stark, like for disabled people outside the NDIS, there's nothing. And for people who are relying on income support, you know, living on very low incomes, they're either going without like food to pay for essential things or they're just doing without. And so, and that causes then either people's disabilities to get worse and then they go on the NDIS. Or it is that people are in significant hardship, so, and really doing it tough. So, I think they're the elements around what the scheme is calling for. And for kids in particular, which we'll talk a bit more later on, uh, that's going to be a very, very important area to think through how we do this, how we manage all of the workforce issues that we all talk about and know so well. But that is going to matter all over the place. We can't bring back home and community care, for example, when in New South Wales, the government sold it off. <laughs> and so and it's kind of like we've lost a lot of that infrastructure. So. Thinking through how we deliver that will be really important. But before we, I just wanted to, if we hadn't had the National Cabinet Agreement this week, where the states had come to the party around participating in this and putting some money in, it would be a much different conversation about what we could actually expect. So we've got half a chance of making this work now that the National Cabinet um, Agreement happened. Uh, and I cannot tell you how relieved I was when that happened. Um. I'm, I'm going to ask questions that I think people listening are going to want to know. Are some people going to be thrown off the NDIS as a result of this foundational support recommendation? Yeah, I don't know is the answer, George. I think the idea, particularly with kids, the language that's been used is that people can get the support they need where they are. So for kids, that is early childhood settings and schools, obviously. Uh, and I think for adults with disability, it's a slightly different picture because I think there are, what, 300,000 adults on the, on the NDIS. And no, I don't necessarily think that. I think most people on there have, you know, will probably stay on the scheme. But what it means is that people who need a moderate level of support won't have to do the, you know, the NDIS being the only place to get support, for people who can navigate that and get the, the reports and the diagnosis and all of the shenanigans uh, to be able to get on and get a small package, they may be able to not have to go through all of that trauma, basically, to actually get the supports they need in the community if what they're after is a small amount of, you know, home and community care because those services will be there. 
Um, but that also means that people who have like a, um, a non-permanent disability, so say someone has cancer, doesn't have a family or doesn't have support, but urgently needs some help and support. We know that at the moment people get nothing so um, or have to rely on volunteers or something else. And so uh, for people who are, you know, unwell for a long period of time, like two or three years, they will be able to get something, you know. So one of the things in we put out a big media statement from all of the disability representative organisations, not just the national ones, but lots of state organisations from lots of across the civil society. We had about I think, 60 or 70 organisations signed up. And as part of that statement, we said that no one is to be taken out of the scheme or any of that while there's nothing else. Like there's just to be nothing so that people with disability aren't going to you know, own my dead body will miss out on supports while the states get their shit together, to, you know, the technical term um, of how this is going to work. So, like, I want to reassure people that absolutely we will fight any attempts to remove people from the scheme before anything else is in place because that would be even more unfair than the current system already is. Thanks, Al. That's really sorry. Next year, we come up with... Young uh, people with autism, and uh, on the committee of everything counts. Are you concerned about this proposal? Yeah, th there's a lot of concern in the autism community. We've all heard the rhetoric in the media lately that um, autistic people and, and kids in particular are the, the problem of the reason that the NDIS blow up, is blowing out, and it's, it's simply not true. We also know that autistic kids particularly have the lowest funding amounts in their plans. Uh, so there is a lot of fear in the community that that is a possibility. And with regards to the foundational supports and the early intervention proposals, some of that looks like it could potentially work um, for, for some people, but there's also some concern that how that might play out in regional and remote Australia, uh, where there is much smaller markets. Uh, we know there's a shortage of allied health professionals Australia-wide, and there is the possibility that there's concern that schools could take the funding and, and use it for the purposes that they choose, uh, which is what happens particularly in Western Australia, with the education support funding. But there's also the concern that in regional and remote areas where there aren't enough allied health professionals to go around, that those professionals may be allocated to a particular school, which means that we're effectively creating segregated schooling and we don't want that to happen. So we need to be really careful in how we co-design these foundational supports and the early intervention pathways to make sure that it's really properly fair and inclusive for people. Yeah, that's really important. Elle, tell us a bit more about early intervention. Yeah, I mean, the report's quite clear that um, there was meant to be two early intervention pathways, like one for kids and one for adults, and that the adult one is totally underdeveloped and basically nobody really knows what it is or knows how to use it, but that they want to do much more work there. Um, I think it's fairly well accepted now. Like, I feel like we've won that particular policy battle that, you know, supporting kids early on is a really good thing and that we should do more of that. So the foundational supports around kids is talking about a kind of widespread screening that will screen most kids, if not all of them, for any kind of developmental delay, uh, which affects up to 20% of kids, and then make sure they get the supports they need without necessarily having to get a diagnosis. When I think that is a really good idea because I think that it means that instead of uh, for families who can afford it, they, you know, go and pay large amounts of money to get uh, diagnoses to tick a particular box. 
um, to make sure they can get the supports the kids need. But for kids, for families who can't afford to spend thousands of dollars on that, they sit on public hospital waiting lists for two, three years to get in to see a specialist, and then kids miss out on that kind of early intervention supports that they need. So, you know, I don't want to medicalise this stuff. Like, I think it's like... I think some kids end up going to enormous amounts of individualised therapy on top of school, and I think maybe that's not the best way of doing it. Again, I'm not a super expert, but I think I remember being a kid and I don't know whether I would have liked doing that. So I think making sure that we can do that in early childhood and schools is a good idea, but we have to invest in the workforce. We cannot ask early childhood educators and teachers and schools to do all of this stuff without extra money, extra help, extra resourcing. Uh, and time to get it right. Like, I think I really worry about rushing anything and, you know, I really want to make sure that we do this correctly. Otherwise, we'll be back here in five years' time going, yikes, that hasn't worked. Uh, let's try and fix that again. Yeah, I think that applies for all the recommendations, doesn't it? <laughs> let's now look at access to the NDIS because that's, uh, that's one that people really want to know how that's going to work. Nick, how, how is that going to change? Okay, so firstly, the panel has recommended that the eligibility lists be removed. So instead of being based on diagnosis, they want people to be supported to apply for access rather on the based on the impact of their disability on their function. So the report recommends that the government pay for any assessments that people need to prove the impact of their disability and the panel also recommended that the NDIS access request form should be simplified. I'm on board with that one. Um, and that the NDIS stop using primary and secondary di diagnoses. Um, I want to note here that currently a diagnosis is not actually required to access the NDIS. The eligibility lists were established to make it quicker and easier for people with certain conditions to access the NDIS. Um, and, and page, I think it was 90 of the report, lays out the participant pathway that the NDIS review panel is recommending. So it, it's kind of like mainstream services would refer people with disability to the navigators in the foundational supports, which would then would be replacing the roles of the local area coordinator, support coordinators and early childhood approach coordinators. Um, the, the navigators would help people to find the support they need in the community, including the foundational supports. And they would also help people to understand what the NDIS is for, who it's for, and how to apply for access if eligible. The panel also recommended functional assessments be conducted by allied health professionals to help with determining whether people are eligible for the NDIS. Can yeah. I ask you, can, can you assessments? And people get scared when they hear the word assessments. We all remember the independent assessments um, and, and how our community felt about those. So are independent assessments back? I hope not. And I, I do know that the recommendation also includes that it, these assessments be fully co-designed with people with disabilities. So that does give me hope. Um, I do also we're, we're looking at two different types of assessments so a functional assessment to gain access to the NDIS and then there's also a recommendation for a support needs assessment for determining funding so that's the independent assessments were a functional assessment to determine funding amounts and that was never going to work 
This is talking about a support needs assessment to determine funding. Although my question, I guess, really to the NDI's review panel is, why do we need a functional assessment to determine eligibility and then another assessment to determine support needs? Wouldn't it be more streamlined and less of an impact on people to simply do a support needs assessment to determine whether people need foundational supports or whether people might need support through the NDIS? So if we look at it from a more, from a bit more of a perspective of the support needs rather than impact on function, I'm wondering if that might be a, possibly a better way to do it. Do you have any thoughts on what's different from a needs assessment from a functional assessment? Well, the functional assessment is more medicalised, right? It's more about the impact of a disability on function, the things that we can't do, whereas a support needs assessment is looking more at the, the supports that we need to do the things that we want to do and to, to live an inclusive life in our communities. Um, so it's that that slight difference and I feel like it's a bit more strength based and it's a bit more around what we actually need as to opposed as opposed to the things that we can't do. That sounds a lot better. Um results on that? Yeah, I, I do. I think explaining that hi, George. I think a difference between the functional capacity and the needs assessment is a functional capacity assessment says I can't make a cup of coffee and a needs assessment says um, I need a tipping kettle or I need a worker or I need a whatever it is I need to make a cup of coffee because that's going to be different. Just because you can't make a cup of coffee doesn't mean the way to solve that is the same for everyone because that is going to be a different solution for everybody. Thanks, Sam. Is there anything else that we need to know about the assessments? Not so much about the assessments, but with regards to access, the other thing that we need to be aware of is that the review report recommends removing the eligibility lists for NDIS as well. Uh, so this could make it more difficult for some people to gain access to the NDIS, the people who have conditions on list A for eligibility, but it could also make it easier for people that don't have a diagnosis. Those more hidden conditions may find it easier to gain access to the NDIS. We need to keep a, an eye on that one. Thank so, How about this really important topic, which I reckon would make a great name for podcast, at reasonable and necessary? Um, do you uh, know what the report says about this concept of reasonable and necessary? Because I know that it's often what people get told that they can or can't have things because they either, they either are or are not reasonable and necessary. So that concept is really important. What does the report say on that? It didn't define reasonable and necessary, um, but the review report did recommend that the government change the NDIS Act and the rules to define reasonable and necessary as the total amount of funding um, that is determined to meet the support needs of a participant. So they're recommending that we have a reasonable and necessary budget that's based on our support needs and the intensity of our support needs rather than on um, the impact on function. Um, so they want the allied health professional that's assessing our support needs to take into consideration our individual circumstances and deciding a budget that we need to 
be able to participate in an inclusive life. And the other thing that the report recommended was that our NDIS plans be a lot more flexible, which is great, um, and that people with disability and families be trusted to use our funding in the ways that best support our needs. But with a lot more guidance from the navigators, and they also want us to use evidence-based supports. How would they be more flexible, Nick? So um, we're talking about a budget that's for the whole of the person. So there's some things that would be not flexible, so there would still be some stated supports, like for home and living supports, for example, might be stated supports, but the rest of the budget would be more flexible. So rather than having a core and a capacity building budget, we'd be able to flexibly use our funding between the two. Oh, that's good. That's a good thing. I love flexibility and choice. Speaking of which, probably the safeguards and self-relevance, Jared, what are the, the proposed changes um, around those things for, uh, from the NDIS review? Um, I knew you were going to commit a spicy one, George. The work. I think we're all pretty um, disappointed in the community around the lack of teeth that the Commission has had in the past and um, some of the things that have come out. Um, it's probably good to say, it's probably important to say that this is also in response it could be in response to what we've seen in the um, Disability World Commission as well. So I imagine the, the NDIS review panel would be taking that into consideration. Um, so a lot more tightening up and a lot more oversight of uh, services and things. Um, what that means for participants, especially those who are self-managed or plan-managed, is that the first thing, well not the first because we don't have timelines at the moment, but one of the things they're doing is they're removing plan management. Well, they're suggesting removing plan management. And um, unregistered providers. So what that means is if you, uh, for example, if you have um, your cleaner who is just a typical cleaner and you pay them out of your NDIS funding and they're not NDIS registered then well, you won't be able to use them. But what they can do is they can register and what they're talking about is making, uh, they're having tiers of registrations. So things like cleaners, um, gardeners, uh, transport maybe will have less of a barrier to get into the workforce. Um, but when it comes to things like personal care, home and living, um, those things will be quite tight um, and um, they're lengthy process. Which, which brings us to probably the biggest contentious issue in the community at the moment is who decides on 
um, who supports me. And um, there seems to be a, a mentality that if you have relationships provided, if you have quarterly, um, quarterly safeguarding um, processes, and if support workers have qualifications, that somehow uh, pre prevents um, or lessens the risk of, um, of abuse and neglect. And we've seen in the DRC that that's not, not technically accurate. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I obviously have a vested interest in this because I require, um, in-home support. And all of my team are, uh, uh, unregistered and they do a fantastic job. Um, so... I'm a little bit distressed about this, George. Yeah, I totally understand, so you're not alone. There's a lot of us. I'm also one of those people who are very, very concerned about the recommendation in the report to restrict our options and, and force us to use registered providers. Uh, one of the things that um, I think it's um, important to... Uh, so far, this is that then these are recommendations, and um, there will be opportunities to have your say, have your input. I've already heard the important say that um, he, he wants to listen and work with the community, um, and I'm listening on Monday. Um, so I'll tell you more about how, how that goes. Um, so is self-management uh, dead? Is it still kind of like... Uh, one of the things that, that I know people say to me is that they self-manage, not because they love doing the paperwork, no one loves that, they do it because they want to use unregistered providers. So why would you self-manage now if you're going to have to use registered providers? So they've been talking for a little while before the recommendations, before the report came out, about making self-management a little bit easier um, with a system. I'm not quite sure now, or Nick might know the name of it, or even Sam and George, you might but, but The name of the system is C-POF. I don't know what the C stands for, but the yeah. PR stands for Point of Sale. Yeah. I don't understand what's all about this, but I talk to us about C-Post I don't know. I think a lot is probably not <laughs> correct, but um, I think... Um, you know a lot about everything, Sam. <laughs> no, no, I absolutely <laughs> do not. <laughs> um, but uh, my understanding of the CPOS is basically that our our budgets would be preloaded into our sort of access through our phones or a card. I think it, they're talking about through your phone. Um, so you can just tap and go and pay as you go because one of the big barriers for self-management, obviously, is that for many things you would need to pay up front. And if you don't have the capacity to do that, you know, you, you can't self-manage. So the idea of being able to tap and pay for things um, up front straight away is really, really attractive. So, um, you know, this has been flagged for quite a long time. We changed the legislation last year to allow for this. Um, 
I'm actually really excited about that part of, of the changes to the scheme. But once again, all these things are happening slowly and we've got to do them right because I do have a concern. I, I don't want everybody to know that I'm using NDIS funds for everything all the time. So there are some things that we need to work out and I think that's where all that co-design is going to come in. And the, the review has been just so clear about how important it is to develop all of this stuff in a co-design way with disabled people and families. So I'm very, I'm buoyed by that side of things, certainly. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the card. I, I hate paying invoices and having to cry, like, can you just put on the card? That'll be handy. So that? I was worried about the card. That's what I realised all providers are going to be um, some level of registration because it did feel a little bit annoying. Um, if you walk into the supermarket and you have to buy your wipes or your gloves or your COVID test um, and you put out this card that everyone knows is different, um, that can be quite um, annoying. But now that, now that we all have to have some level, sorry, now that services have to have some level of registration, <laughs> I, I think we're pretty much giving up that. Um, that we're not, we haven't given up yet, Darren. Those are recommendations. I'm going <laughs> to make some suggestions here, Jared. And, uh, I really... Um, as much as I think that you're right about the othering, I also know that when I pay on a credit card on my phone, the person behind the teller doesn't know which card I'm using. Right? I could be using a gift card that's preloaded onto my Apple wallet. I could be using my Amex or my credit card or my bank account. And if NDIS is just one of the things in that list of options, they're not going to know. They're not going to know who I'm paying with. So I do think there are some options. I think the registration part has to be there because, of course, they have to be connected to that CPOS system. So for the supermarket, for example, it's going to be as simple as them enrolling in the system, not having to do audit or anything like that. That's um... Yeah, that does bring up another cost of entry for service providers. So, so when we're talking about lawnmowers and, and gardeners, that's another cost that they would need to um, absorb. Karen, thank you for that. I might get Nick Avery to come in on this one. Because I know Nick, but you live in a rural regional area where services are often quite hard to find. How, what are your reflections on the changes on the product of the proposed, I'm going to keep saying it, proposed changes to the quality and safeguarding? Yeah, there are some, some concerns, particularly for regional and remote Australia. Um, there's four levels of registration that the panel is recommending. So there's advanced registration for high-risk supports, general registration for medium-risk supports, and then basic registration for lower risk and enrolment, which is your basic visibility and requirements for the lowest risk support. So that's your cleaners, your gardeners, that sort of thing. Um, my concern is that this is a stick rather than a carrot. Um, we have massive shortages of providers in all areas. And if, particularly in regional and remote Australia, where there might be only one or two participants with an unregistered provider, so what incentive is there for a provider to register to do enrolments? We, we know that people hate filling out forms. Nobody enjoys filling out forms or dealing with bureaucracy. So regardless of how simplified 
it is, this, this enrolment process, and they're talking about a simple process, but they've also suggest, recommended that even for the enrolment level, the, the, the lowest level, that the workers would be required to do the NDIS code of conduct training and a worker screening check um, and prove identi identity as well. So there's, there's, it's not simply a matter of, of notifying them of your ABN, for example. So my concern is that particularly in regional and remote Australia, providers are just going to say, nah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to register. And those two or three people with disability in a, in a community that need the cleaner or the gardener won't have it. Um, and we also we need to remember that we're in the middle of a housing crisis, right? So if you're a person with disability living in a private rental and you can't get a cleaner to clean your home, you're then at risk of being evicted because you can't meet your, your rental inspection requirements. And also, Again, on, on the fact that we're in the middle of a housing crisis, what about builders for home modifications and things like that? What incentive is there for a builder to regis register as an NDIS provider to do those home modifications that we need? Here in Western Australia, um, as recently as last year, I haven't checked again, uh, but there was only one NDIS registered provider in WA for, who was a builder, and they, they were based in Perth. So... We're already having an issue with um, the NDI's requirement that if the uh, home modifications cost more than $30,000, you have to do a registered provider. And we had one for the entire state. Uh, and WA is a pretty big state, guys. It's, it's, it's not very practical. So we need to make sure that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We, we need that choice and control. We need that ability to make sure that people with disability aren't left without support because we're requiring registered providers. Uh, we need to have strike a, a balance. We need that to protect choice and control. That's, was, that's the NDIS that we fought for. But we also need to make sure that maybe people with intellectual disability um, that are, are being placed into accommodation that's not suitable or is not safe, that, that we know where they are and that they're supported. So. I would like to see the disability community co-design a, a method that protects our choice and control, uh, make sure that the people who are at higher risk are safe, but also make sure that people get the support they need and are able to choose who supports us. Yeah, Tosh is fine for that. A little bit that really well. I, I want to add you now, Al, um, and get your perspective on this, because I know that um, you, you work with uh, advocates and advocacy organisations, and you see a lot of people in uh, really awful situations. Could you give us your take on this? Yeah, I think one of the things that advocates talk to me about that I wakes me up at 3 o'clock in the morning all the time is people in what we call unregistered SILs. So um, supported independent living is the category of funding where people have the highest support needs and it's, you know, really intensive uh, support all the time. There is a really big and growing number of people who are living in places that are out of sight and have no oversight at all. And so it is now thousands of people and advocates sort of lose people if you like like people who were living in boarding houses and in really insecure housing but have significant seal packages are literally picked up and taken out to god only knows where and 
one of the things that, that the panel I know is worried about and is this issue around where are people? Why, I mean, I'm furious that the agency doesn't have any visibility around this and that this has been allowed to happen for a start. This should never, ever have been allowed to happen by the Quality and Safeguards Commission or the agency and never been able to, should have been allowed to grow in the last three years in the way that it has. Um, and yeah, you can hear that I'm quite angry about it because I think these are some of the most disadvantaged people who often have no families and no one around. And so they're really rely on advocates to be walking with them to have anything like the kind of choice and control that we've talked about. So I think that tackling that issue is urgent and urgently needs to be done. But I really am worried about exactly the issues that Nick had raised around. I live in a regional area as well and I cannot imagine the guy who mows my lawn having anything to do with registration. Um, it's a slightly random, very regional arrangement that would be extremely difficult to find any kind of regulation system to deal with that and Gray and his quite odd schedule. But anyway, uh, but it works totally fine for me and works fine for my neighbours and, and the way that it works. But so I think that the critical element here is how do we embed the co-design that isn't just kind of ad hoc, but right structurally in from the beginning. And the thing that we asked for in the big statement, the collective statement was a disability reform implementation council because we have the recommendations from both the Royal Commission and the review now happening. And for us not to be at the table, as we're not at the table for the Royal Commission, they've done this task force behind closed doors, uh, where we're just kind of being asked to consult for the survey and some of that kind of stuff, which feels incredibly disrespectful. We have to actually be baked into how these reforms are rolled out and discussed, and we need to design what the co-design looks like because I think it's really important that we are seen as equals in this process. And what I worry about is that governments will kind of get into a room and go, oh, well, we need to do this and this must happen this way. And uh, then we'll be asked to co-design, co which is really consultation on the model that they develop. So we need to be pushing really hard for, for us to actually be at the table in significant numbers. We have to be included, but I think that we have to make sure that the system works for people who have self-managed and done it really well and that works really well, but we have to have a regulatory system that means that people with intellectual disability or people without families are not being exploited and abused in the way that they are. And, you know, Jared, I totally agree that registration isn't the silver bullet to stop violence and abuse at all. We've seen that with the own motion inquiry from the Quality and Safeguards Commission and from the Royal Commission. But un that unregistered seal providers is not the answer either. So we've got to balance all of these things together and do it properly and well and in kind of deliberative steps, I think, to make sure that we can get things right so that choice and control is absolutely preserved. But how do people who use seal have choice and control as well? So that's important. It was really interesting that only, only found out that seal was able to be I'd be in the first place. Um. It, it feels like there, there, were, there were things that that happened as the NDIS was developed that were absolutely never intended. Um, and that we need to look at those and go, okay, we need to, we need to understand the problem. The solution, I think, is one where people like where people can have individualised arrangements and that some of those individualised arrangements 
will include direct employment, it will include um, providers that are, that are innovative. Nick, you directly employed. How did you feel not seeing one mention of direct employment in the report? I wasn't surprised to see it um, not included in the report because it's often not on the radar with NDIS um, very often. It tends to be forgotten. Uh, I mean, direct employment is where people are self-managing NDIS funding and managing payroll, superannuation, workers' compensation, tax, training for the support workers. All of that is managed. Um, I mean, we are direct employing support workers and they are part-time, they are paid $42 an hour, and we're saving the taxpayer $30,000 a year. So um, our son is um, has quite high support needs and would, under this, the proposed system, would be requiring either advanced or general re registration for support workers. So that, that would then mean that we're not able to use the support workers that he's built a relationship up with now one 11 years with one and four with the other um, and also that his supports would instantly cost thirty thousand dollars more than what they currently do per year um, i think that we need to come up with a system for ensuring that people are safe uh, and ensuring that choice and control is protected and that direct employment can occur and that people can still use unregistered providers. And one of the things that we wrote in a submission to the NDIS review was a suggestion around safeguarding that involved more check-ins with participants to make sure that participants were safe, that providers were not defrauding them, that funds were being spent by providers in the way that they should be, and, and providing more support in that way. Uh, in the community I live in, it's not uncommon for people to have not heard from NDIS at all for three or four years. And that's not okay. You know, we, we need to, is there a role for navigators in, in this system to be part of that safeguarding process rather than taking away um, the choice and control to be able to choose who supports us? I agree with what Elle was saying, that we need to make sure that people who are being exploited are, are not, that that can't happen. But I don't think that mandatory registration is the answer. Can I turn to you now to help us understand how the review wants the experience of the participant to be in the future under the NDIS? Yeah, I mean, I think the review's taken very seriously what disabled people and families have said, that the current system is traumatising, which is a pretty awful way to and have on the record that a government system that's supposed to provide public services is profoundly traumatising for disabled people and families. So the way that they've talked about the participant kind of journey is for uh, it to kind of be like a funnel where people can come in and more people can come in and get support and then that kind of the way that that is they work with the navigator uh, is actually much less about blame, much less about kind of justifying individual items all the time, much less about, you know, the $3,000 OT report for the $1,000 wheelchair cushion, which is uh, what a friend of mine had to go through. Um, and I think that kind of process, as Nick and Sam have talked about, about trusting people with disability and families with their whole budgets, like rather than this kind of line-by-line -line justification 
uh, different things in different pots and then having to re-justify that to the plan manager and re-justify that to the NDIS before you can actually purchase the item or do the thing. And so I think that kind of building of capacity has been one of the big missing pieces. I think the last couple of years have really seen the NDIS, the way I've described it, is kind of protecting the scheme from disabled people rather than facilitating us to live in the community and to have a good life. And so I think to see that cultural change in the agency and the cultural change to to shift to people with disability and families being in charge of their whole budgets and over a much longer period of time will be the way individualised support systems work in other places. Um, we had, uh, and Dana, we got Simon Duffy to do a report for us around the NDIS Mark II, and I know you had a conversation with him and Dr Mark Brown uh, around that, and that was one of the things that he was so horrified by compared to other systems that the NDIS had, had kind of morphed into this line-by-line uh, -line approvals all the time rather than actually trusting people with disability with their own budgets. Now, let's talk about one of my favourite topics, and that's housing and living. Sam, what are they recommending in this area? There's some big stuff in here, George. Um, I think I really just want to cover one or two um, because, you know, it's only been 48 hours since this thing was released, and I've got to be honest, I have not yet read all 1,800 pages of report and supporting documentation and everything else. So I think the big news in the NDIS review is the talk of one to three shared supports and that that would be basically the standard funding uh, level or the, the, the most funding level for most people. They've very clearly said that there'll be exceptions to that. There will always be funding for people who require higher levels of funding, and I think that's really important for everybody to know. Um, but one of the reasons for this one to three statement is actually to reduce um, people living in these really large grouped homes and environments. So when, when they're funding people at one to seven because they're living in a, um, in a boarding house or they're in an institution, for example, we're not going to see that anymore. So people are going to get at a minimum, um, those that need significant supports will be getting that one to three. I think people are a little nervous, um, people that want to share with one person or want to live alone, that they may not get that funding um, or that they're going to... There's chatter about people being forced into group homes and shared environments. And I don't think that's what it means and where it's going. I think what they're really trying to say is that we're not gonna, we don't have the budget to give everybody full one-to-one -one support. Now, I'm not going to give a position on that because, you know, I'm uncomfortable with that thought that we, that we can't afford that. So I, I don't really want to go deep into that. What I do want is for us to know that one to three doesn't mean you have to share with two other people. It means that you've got a funding bucket that you should be using creatively where you can still share supports without having to share your home. So, uh, and I think there's some really creative and awesome ways to do this. ILO has not been taken up across the scheme as well as it could have and should have. And I think this is going to really encourage and support people to look at that carefully and do that really well. You know, there is an acronym there, SAN. Thank you. ILO. Yep. Uh, Individualised living options. I don't think it actually means anything. Um, it really just means you get a bucket of money, you make it work for you. So, for example, uh, my son, when he moves out next year, he is actually going to share with another young disabled man. Um, but they don't have, they won't probably get 
funding to give them 24-7 support, but they are going to be share housing with other young people without disability who can provide that overnight uh, backup, I guess. And we are going to develop relationships with the neighbours if needed. I know that one of the neighbours at his house, for example, is, um, is a plumber. So I know that if the pipes burst or the electricity goes off, he's going to know to go next door and knock on Scotty's door and say, mate, come and help. Um, they're the things that can reduce the needs for that 24-7, one-to-one, in-your-face support that most people, most participants, don't really want a worker in their face all the time anyway. So what's been interesting to me um, about that uh, recommendation is that when we look at the whole... Because we need to look at the, the report as a whole, is yeah. that these recommendations around through the one might work if you can do things that are creative and individualised. But if you have the safeguarding framework that says you must use these providers, then suddenly you can't be as, as flexible. So I think mm. that those two I recommendations think can't... That can't be together very well. I think there's a big difference, George, between saying you have to use those providers and saying, here are the providers I want to use. They need to do some work to be able to do that. And I note our discussion earlier about a gardener, for example, not wanting to get you know, enrolled or fill in a form. Um, but I'm just going to say, you know, we often use the example of Anne-Marie Smith, her tragic death. And we talk about the fact that she had a registered provider. But what we don't talk about very often was that she had a gardener that was worried, who didn't do anything because the gardener had never, didn't know anything about disability, didn't know anything um, about avenues and ways that he could or should have reported what he was seeing. And if he had done the code of conduct, if he had done the work orientation module, I'm pretty confident that Anne-Marie Smith would be alive. This is a really emotional thing. This is a really emotional thing. It's it's very distressing for all of us and um, from many different perspectives. And I think we have to be really careful to remember that this is all going to be co-designed. You know, I employ an artist to support Ben, right? These are all different things that they could never have covered in the review. Um, and that's why the sensible thing is that we work in that co-design capacity to make sure that we've got the ways of doing this that work for people that we've got these innovative models and not even innovative ways, just standard ways of, of self-employing our own workers um, that we should still be able to do under this new system. And there's always going to be room for individual arrangements, always room for individual situations. It, it, is, it is a unique scheme and they're not going to take that out of the... They can't take... That's part of the United Nations Convention. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to remind them that. And I think the fact that I... But the, the report did say that there will be exceptions and they will look at individual situations. So um, I, I think that we absolutely need the co-designers for it to work. Um, Nick, any thoughts on that? I think that um, with the three-to-one ratio as well, we need to remember um, and, and consider the circumstances of people who might be living in a small community. And if you're one person with the only person with 24-7 support needs in your community, you shouldn't have to move away to another town or 
three hours or six hours away from your family and friends to be able to access that support. So we need to make sure that those sorts of things are factored in to the considerations around these kinds of supports. Nick, I couldn't agree with you more. And I really want to say how important that is, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that um, traditionally those people have had to move into cities well away from their communities and networks and we must never let that happen. And the, the review is actually pretty clear around developing some really good cultural skill uh, and nuance around that. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Thanks, Nick. Oh, thanks, Nick. Anything else around home and living fan? Look, there's a few other things. You know, a lot of people were a little bit blindsided by the suggestion that we remove um, SDA category for improved livability. Um, so I think there's going to have to be some work around that. Um, I will say that I'm pretty confident that if you already have improved livability, that won't be taken away from you. But I think they are going to look at how those categories are designed and um, redesign them in a way that might work in a more sustainable way, both financially and to meet the needs of people. As coordinators, we've been finding that people who should be getting robust SDA have been given improved livability. So if they don't get anything, we're in big trouble. So I'm very sure, confident that through some co-design, we'll get that, we'll, we'll make that better. Thanks, Anne. Now, you as a coordinator, you probably know a bit about intermediaries and how, how what the report says about that. Yeah, look, this is a big change, um, a big, big change. Um, what, we're, what they're looking at is basically the removal of support coordination and plan management uh, or plan managers uh, and commissioning what we call uh, navigators and specialist navigators. So the navigators and the specialist na navigators are essentially looking at what we've got for LAC right now and what we've got for uh, support coordination and bringing it together into one service, taking away that planning element that the LACs have been doing. So the idea is the LACs reimagined in the way that they always should have been, which was never to be doing this planning stuff, um, but actually to be helping people on the ground, whether they are in the scheme or not, um, and really supporting everyone. So imagining, imagine a hub where you've got any disability-related issue or need, you drop in there and they can have that discussion with you and help you. So it's a it's a fabulous idea. Um, is that uh, the end of the growing space? Well, I just think that we will reimagine and re-envisage um, how we do our work and what we do and we'll just offer something different. Thanks, Anne. I'd like to now uh, look into the workforce. Nick, what does the report say on the workforce? Okay, so there's a whole bunch of recommendations around the workforce. As Sam was just mentioning, um, navigators taking the place of the LACs and the early childhood approach coordinators and support coordinators. Um, the report suggests that this role be appointed in local communities by tender. Um, so a lot of us think that the, the role of navigators should be provided by disability peer support organisations and possibly advocacy groups, not by large organisations that may have limited expertise. So I'd like to see the tender process co-designed to ensure that this is the case. Um, we, we've, as Sam just mentioned, um, plan managers could potentially be a thing of the past. I'd like to personally see us to continue to be able to access unregistered providers in some format and whether there is a role for plan management in that and maybe it looks different to how it does today, maybe that's a possibility. 
another thing that Minister Shorten mentioned at the press club luncheon, he said that support workers would be required to have minimum TAFE qualifications. So the current Cert 3 and 4 and individualised support are not really fit for purpose for most people with disability. They're, they're very introductory and generalised and most people with disability in our families need to invest time and effort into training our support workers anyway. The course is also not available everywhere, especially in regional and remote areas. So requiring this as a minimum qualification has again the potential to adversely impact people in those areas. Um, another recommendation around workforce was that allied health professionals perform the assessments to decide funding budgets for participants, provide um, assessments for um, functional impact for assessment, and provide uh, early intervention supports in the foundational supports settings. So there's already a massive shortage of allied health professionals in Australia. Uh, personally, I've waited more than three years to access an occupational therapist. Um, the, the reporter sorry, the report recommends progressively rolling out provider panel arrangements for allied health supports in small and medium rural towns. But these allied health professionals currently do not exist. So what's needed is a significant investment in university places for allied health students, um, maybe fee reduction incentives, and to roll out these changes over a longer period than five years. We, we need to attract students to allied health we need them to complete their course of study and gain relevant experience. We don't want to be dropping hundreds of new graduates with little or no understanding of disability into these roles because that could be potentially risky to participants. Absolutely. Sam, the final topic is one that um, uh, is a very fancy word, market stewardship. What, what is market stewardship to start with? Yeah, I had to go look that up, mate. <laughs> um, market stewardship. I, you know, I don't. I'm not even going to define it, but I'm going to. I'm going to talk about what they think, what how they want this to look, and what it is is bringing all disability stuff together across all levels of government, uh, in government, to make sure that people with disability are considered and looked after at all, uh, in all places, so that everything works together. So we've got this thing called the Australia's Disability Strategy, which is supposed to mean that, you know, the Transport Department and the Health Department and the Prison Department, all of these people um, look after people with disability. What the market stewardship piece of the review is proposing that we have an overarching body for disability across the country that looks after all sorts of things, including the agreements between the states and the federal governments, um, you know, that looks after research and outcomes, that looks after things like building really good research and evidence about what works for people with disability. Um, it's, quite, it's quite a big picture perspective of what needs to happen in the sector. I think we've covered all the topics now, which is a great time to just get some overall reflections on the whole report. How about I start with the Sam? Sure. Overall reflections, I think, I think we all need to take a breath and slow down and know that this is going to be a really long process. This is five years in the making and a lot can happen in five years and it gives a lot of room and space for disabled voices um, and that's the key to all of this. So we've got to work with disabled people 
and families to make sure that the recommendations don't have unintended consequences. We've got to ensure that those specialised use cases and services for one and situations are worked into all the models. We've got to make sure that choice and control stays at the heart of all of this stuff. It just has to be, has to be that way. Oh. One of the things about the review is that the Prime Minister and Cabinet who ran the review were completely astonished by the level of engagement from disabled people. And I think it shows government how much that people care about the NDIS and now and into the future. And I think it shows them that we want to let them deliver something that is less than amazing. So I'm really looking forward to getting into the detail with everyone and working hard to realise this to fix the NDIS, but also to fix the other parts that have been so difficult for lots of other disabled people. So, yeah, I'm up, I'm up for it. Thanks, Al. Jared? No one keeps people safe in community, and no one keeps disabled people more safe than the disabled community. So I would like to see an implementation of peer support um, both professional and in the community helping um, just like I always talked about and Nick's talked about um, we need a high level maintain a high level of people with disabilities voices being a part of this process There's some really good stuff in the report and there's also some stuff that causes me concern um, I think the important thing for us to remember as a community is that nothing changes right now. We can advocate for in favour of the things that we feel are good in the report and we can advocate for alternatives to the things that we disagree with. So, you know, I think that's really important. And we also have a commitment from the NDIA Senior Executive to co-designing this work with us. We have also a commitment from the Commonwealth Government to co-design this work with us. So I want to see the entire disability community having our say about making this work for us. It's our NDIS and we need to fix it. Thank you. What a great note to end on. Thank you, everyone, for your contribution. Um, I, I feel like our community is stronger together and we're stronger with information and and knowing what all of this means. And I feel like today we got a little bit closer to helping people know what this all means. You as individuals and as organisations have really made an important contribution today by joining me on this podcast. So thank you for your time and have a great afternoon. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. We want to thank all of our podcast partners, Every Sand Caps, Disability Advocacy Network Australia, and The Growing Space. Please keep an eye on our social media for all the ways that you can have your say on the advice review, and it's important that we all do. As you know, a lot of feedback, so please share your thoughts with us in the comment section below. Thanks for listening, and until next time, 
Start well and reasonable.